Chris as he's about to come up and minister to us. We pray that you would just use him in a mighty way tonight to speak to us and that we would see what you would want us to hear and that we would apply what we learn today in the um, lesson to our lives as we walk and live in your world. In Jesus name. Thanks. Okay. Hi, everybody. I'm going to come up here. Um, glad you guys are here. And I know it's, I know it's tough, tough sledding right now, but the Lord is good. He's going to get you through it. And before you know it, you'll be eating turkey. Jim Bilbray, how you doing, man? Good to see you. Didn't see you sneak in. Um, Tonight, we're looking at Acts chapter 17, and uh, I'll just confess up front, this was a very difficult passage for me um, to look at, and it's a, it's, an, it's a great passage. It's, it's um, all about Athens, and it's about the Apostle Paul taking the Gospel out further and further. If you remember in Acts chapter 1, the promise Jesus gave to His disciples, I will... Um, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, into the outer parts of the world. And right now, Paul is, I think, on the second missionary journey, and he is getting towards those outer parts of the world. He's in um, Greece. He's traveled that far, and he is preaching the gospel in that city, and this is a city that has very few Jewish people. And as you remember, last week we looked at Acts 13, and that was Paul in a city which had a large Jewish population. He was in the synagogue city in Antioch, preaches the gospel. He preaches it in a way that they understand. He uses the Old Testament. And he gives the Old Testament... They had the Old Testament as their authority, and so he preaches according to what they held. And he shows them who Christ is. And he calls them to repent. And he talked about the resurrection. Now he's in Athens. And this is you know, the cosmological center for ideas, for philosophy, for art. It's where the Parthenon is. In Nashville, there's a copy of the Parthenon, right? It's pretty close to uh, Vanderbilt, if you've ever been through there. Um, has anybody been to Greece? Is anybody in here? That'd be an awesome trip. Let's do that. For Actually, there's a mission um, spot that RUF has gone over there. There's like a church that they've been involved with um, and groups have gone over. Maybe that's something we should think about. Um, but this is the city of Zeus. The philo- there was philosophical schools there. The streets were walked by Aristotle and Socrates and all those guys. And this is the place of the, the, the Oropagus the or Mars Hill. And it was basically this court area where people would gather to hear the latest philosophies and the new ideas of the day. And there was actually a council there, kind of like a judicial council, but it wasn't for civil law. It wasn't for you know trials of murderers. It was more about bring your ideas to us and we will give you the thumbs up or the thumbs down. It was more about um, seeing where this idea stood within the philosophical thought of the day. And so, this is where Paul is. It was a city full of sculptures, art, beautiful architecture. Um, but it was a place so different from the religious Jews. There wasn't many Jews that lived there. 
This was a pagan place. They didn't really know much about the God of the Bible. Um, they knew who he was, but they didn't really understand. And it was a very irreligious place, a place that was um, that followed these multitude of idols. And so, read with me, and then we'll dive into this, and hopefully, um, you will pull out some nuggets. Okay. So hear God's word from Acts 17. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, he's waiting for Silas and um, and Timothy, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said... What does this babbler wish to say? Others asked, He seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus in the resurrection. And they took hold of him and brought him to the, the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious, for as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by by man, nor is He served by human hands, as though He needed anything, since He Himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God, in the hope that they might feel their way toward Him and find Him. Yet, He is actually not far from each one of us, for, quote, in Him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed His offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. And of this He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, We will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Demarius and others with him. Okay, this ends the reading of God's Word. Now, um, one of the things I wanted to talk about is just this idea of idolatry. Because we live in a world that's full of idols, just like the Athenians, 
Um, we need the scandal of the gospel to set us free. Okay, that's my basic proposition of this. Okay, because we live in a world similar to the Athenians, full of idolatry, full of idols. We need the scandal of the gospel to be set free. Now, it's interesting. Um, the first, the first thing I want to talk about now. Paul's walking around the city, okay, and it's it's Athens. You know, the Parthenon is there. Um, but within the Parthenon and all across the city, it's known to have statues and um, idols of the Parthenon, or not the Parthenon, but the, the pantheon of Greek gods are like all over the place. So Paul is observing the city. He's walking around and he's seeing all of these things. And his heart is distressed. He's distraught. And it says in the ESV that um, he's, he's provoked or he is... Uh, provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. And what does he do? Well, he goes to the normal place he, he often goes in other cities. He goes to the synagogue. There was, there was a Jewish population there. And he begins to speak to them about what? Jesus and the resurrection. The same sort of things he did in Pisidian Antioch. But the first idol, though, I believe that he has to deal with is what I would call the idolatry of religion. He goes to the synagogue because you got to remember, who was Paul before he was a believer? What was his idols? His idols were the law. His idols were the ceremonial law, the, the moral law of the Old Testament, especially the ceremonial law. You know, he was all about the circumcision on the eighth day, the tribe of Benjamin, his blood, his status. The Old Testament laws and the Pharisaical laws that came out of that, that's what he held to. That's what he said, this is my God, so to speak. And so when Jesus came along, he saw Jesus not as a Messiah because he wasn't even thinking about a Messiah. Because he had heard that Jesus died on the cross. And to the Jew, the cross or, or being killed on a piece of wood, the cross, in Deuteronomy it says... You're cursed if you do that. So, when they heard that Jesus died on the cross, immediately, Jesus is a loser. Jesus is not someone you follow. Jesus is not the Lord of heaven and earth. He is not our Messiah. He is a defeated person. Paul was full of the law, but he had no place for a Savior. And I think that's important. That the idolatry that he's dealing with ultimately first with the Jewish people is probably this idolatry of the law. And this is what religious people do. You know, this is what we can do. We can set our hope in and our foundations not on Christ, not on what he did, but we set our foundations on, hey, I'm a pretty good person. I do more good things than bad things. I um, go to church. My Sunday school record's perfect. I mean, you can kind of go through the line and say, I'm a good person. Or it might be just moralistic. You're, you're a good citizen. You don't pollute the environment. You recycle plastic. Um, you see yourself as better than other people. And ultimately what you're doing in that is you're saying, my justification is not by Jesus. My justification is in my religion or my moral upbringing and what I do. And so Paul later writes about the law in Galatians 2. He says this, 
Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. So this is what Paul is preaching. He goes into the synagogue and he preaches Jesus. And he says, this is what it's about. Um, Jonathan Edwards, the great pastor back in the first awakening of our country, this is like in the 1730s, he said that um, the Christian is the one who repents both of his good works and of his sin. The Christian is the one who repents of his good works and his sin. Now, when I first heard that, I was like, what do you mean? Like, if you do good works, why are you repenting from them? Any ideas? I'll just leave that out for you. What do you think? Why should a Christian repent of their good works? Sam? Maybe he's not saying so much as stop doing good works, but stop relying on them for yourself. Yeah, I think that's I think that's right at it. Like he's saying that hey, good works are a result of you being saved, and this is what you do to to glorify God. But like that's not what you rely on to say, hey, this is this is what I'm offering to you, God. Like, look what I've done. In fact. The hymn says, you know, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. It's like, I'm empty. Francis Schaeffer said, when we come to Jesus, we come with empty hands. There's nothing we can do. There's no works we can do to say, look at me, I'm justified. As soon as we turn to something, ultimately we're saying that this is our idol. This is what we're holding as our salvation. It's it's ourself or whatever. So, that's the first thing I believe he deals with, because he goes to the synagogue. And he's talking about the idolatry of the city, but I think, first of all, he tells his testimony about the idolatry of the law. And that's what Paul was into. Second thing is this. The Gospel breaks the idolatry of the philosophers. The Gospel breaks the idolatry of the philosophers. I'm going to read 1 Corinthians 1. Paul later writes this to the Corinthians. And this is a famous passage, you've probably heard it, but it deals with the wisdom of God. He says, Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs. And Greeks see wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles. So here we have Paul now dealing with the philosophical folks, the Epicureans and the Stoics in the streets of Athens. And as they hear him talk, it's an interesting phrase. They said, what does this babbler wish to say? And that word babbler is a, is a word that basically means seed picker. It was a derogatory term. When they heard him speaking about Jesus in the resurrection and preaching the gospel, they said, this dude is a babbler. And it wasn't a pleasant term. They were, he, they were saying, like, he's a guy who picks up, like, like a bird picks up seeds here and there. 
He picks up bits of truth here and bits of truth there. And here he's presenting all of these strange ideas to us. He's a babbler. He's a seed picker. But when he's talked about Jesus, who they, they, knew, they had heard of him, and then also what they thought was anastasis, and that's the Greek for resurrection, they thought he was bringing some new ideas of Jesus and the goddess uh, of resurrection, anastasis. And so they said, well, hey, come and let us hear what you're saying about Jesus and Anastasis, resurrection. So that gives him his chance. And so, um, it's funny because God uses a babbler, like He uses this guy who they think is just out of his mind and has some weird, wacky teaching to actually present the truth of the Gospel to them. And so, you know, just a side note too, um, you know, the Christian worldview is not afraid of any thought system or ideas of men or women because it's God's truth. And so even though Paul maybe didn't know everything about Athens or the city, he had a revelation from God, the king of the universe, and he was on a mission to bring that to them. And um, so he's there in the marketplace. But it's interesting too, as he goes through his message, and I don't know if you've noticed this, he didn't quote any scriptures. He didn't say, hey, back in Genesis or Exodus, or um, we see this, guys, the Bible. Okay, He uses the ideas of the Bible, and he uses the truth of the Bible as he presents to these Greeks, but he never quotes scripture per se. In fact, you know what he quotes? He quotes the modern poets and the artists of the day. This is how he presents the Gospel to them. Very different than what he did in the Jewish synagogue. Now he's using their own poets. It's as if um, you know, you hear a song on the radio or you, hear, you, know, you, you read a, a book in culture and then you weave that into your presentation like this truth. And that's what Paul was doing. And so, I wanted to just briefly say, who are these people that came up to him, these Epicureans and these Stoics? And I don't know if there's any philosopher, philosophy people in here or not. Um, I have not studied up a lot on it, but here, let me just give you a brief overview. Epicurus was the guy who started this line of philosophy. This is about 340 B.C., okay? So, 300, 400 years before Jesus, before this happened. Basically, they saw the life... The purpose of life was pleasure and freedom from pain. So, Pat, so um, not full-out hedonism because they were more like uh, party and passion until you pass out, but limited passions because if you got hurt, that was bad. So they were they were basically uh, conservative partiers. Okay, <laughs> is is what they were into. They were materialists. They didn't believe in a spiritual world. They didn't believe in an ultimate. God of the universe. They believe that, you know, time, matter, and chance, very much like naturalists today. Um, they had no belief in an afterlife. They believed that when you died, your soul vanished and you were into the material. The soul evaporates. The world ultimately has no purpose, so live and let live. Um, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Um, but don't eat and drink too much because then that would be painful and then that would be bad. So let, live like a conservative party pleasure life. Okay, um, 
They admired the gods, the pantheon of gods that was out there, but they believed um, they were aloof to the world, and and um, and that's kind of how they like to be aloof to the world and not worrying about it. Stoics. That's the other guy. This guy by the name of Cypriot Zeno, 340 BC. So right around the same time, this other school of thought, and they stressed living in harmony with nature, and they believed basically in a pantheistic idea that basically the God soul was in everything, like God is in the chair, God's in the trees, pantheistic idea. And they believed in a logos or this idea of reason, the spirit of reason, which was which permeated the universe. Okay, so they had a bit more of a uh, spiritual mindset, um, but a little bit more new age. So here's the people that Paul is running into, and how does he bring his truth to bear when he meets these guys? Well, they take him to the Areopagus. He's there in this basically a marketplace council area where they're listening to him present. And so Paul um, begins to speak about the truth of the gospel in language that they can understand. And um, Francis Schaeffer talked about this idea of a point of contact, meaning when you talk to an unbeliever, there may be a similar thing that they believe that also matches up and lines up with Christian belief. And the point of contact that Paul uses in this, in this passage is this idea that they're very religious and they have an unknown God. And so verse 22, he talks about this point of contact. All people are religious and you're trying to worship an unknown God. He says, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you're very religious. For as I pass along and observe the objects of your worship, I found also an altar within, with this inscription, to the unknown God. So he notices that they have this desire to worship and that they, they sense that there's, they sense that all the gods in the, in the pantheon, they don't have enough. That there's something else out there. Like, they know that their gods are limited so to speak, and there must be some other ultimate God. And so they make sure they have this idol to an unknown God. So Paul uses that as his jumping off point to begin to talk about what you don't know, I'm going to make known to you as the gospel. So thinking about that, um, he begins to talk about um, the gospel. But I wanted to do a side note here. Say if you say if you were to walk around the University of Maryland campus, um, you could say the same things. You could say, "I see that Maryland students, administration, culture, you're very religious." And so I'd like to ask you, like, what are some of the idols, or what are some of the the gods, so to speak, that that we worship, or that this culture at Maryland worships. You can just throw them out at me. Grades. Yes. If I don't get 4.0 or whatever or something near there, I'm not going to be able to what? <laughs> I'm not going to be able to get a job. and I'm, Therefore, I'm not going to be able to what? Be successful. And make it in life. I just heard a, ter- a sad story from a person in my care group at Wallace. And this person 
this person is like works at a high school and uh she said there was there's a gal one of the seniors you know trying to get into schools and her parents are like dead set on her getting into ivy league to an ivy league school but she does not have like the grades or the sat and she's like been trying to like get her SATs up and up and like she was in tears in her office just because her parents have this idea of her to get into this school and like she she's just not that smart to get into those elite schools but they're putting all this pressure what are the parents doing what's the idolatry driving them probably the same thing you got to be successful you've got to make it you've got to be this kind of person we're going to live our dreams through you this is idolatry. It's not statues in Athens, but it, it's the same thing. It's the same idea. If these things are driving us, these things, this idea of success and grades, what else? Other, other idols that if we walked around Maryland, we'd see. Environmentalism? Okay. What do you mean? Yeah. And and we'd say like and again I want to say like all these things can be are good things too, but idolatry is when you take that thing and make it an ultimate thing and it kind of becomes your savior, so to speak. But yeah, you could do that with the environment too to the point where we're all there's no plastic bags anywhere. Ever. Which is probably a good thing. Other other things? The idea of testudo, the Greek for terrapin. (laughs) What's that? Yeah, pleasure. Just like the party scene, just, you know, let me not worry about anything. Let me drown my, maybe I'm not doing well, but at least I can party. At least I can enjoy myself and like escape from this life and do this, you know. Um, sexuality becomes part of that the hookup culture um, I don't need commitment I can just have fun and do this and like there's no consequences and the bondage of emotional you know problems like I don't have to worry about those uh, or they think yeah Make, making other people just yeah um Right, and it could be like relationships or whatever, and other like I've got to have this person in my life relationally, or else um, you know my life is worthless or I can't function. Yeah. So, you know, part of this is just to understand that like this is the way all of our hearts work. It's, so it's not just back in Athens when they had these idols, but it's here right now in our lives. In fact, it's it's closer than that. John Calvin had a great quote. He said, the heart of man is an idol factory. The heart of man is an idol factory. Think of, So we are constantly making idols. This is why I'm disappointed when the Ravens lose or the Turfs lose or they don't play defense like they did Monday night or Sunday night against Oregon State. It shouldn't get me mad, but sometimes it gets me depressed. Okay, because why? Because my hope is in that I'll feel better, be able to, I don't know, lift my team up above others. But, you know, that's just kind of a stupid example. But people do that. 
and it defines who they are. Um, so the point of contact, this idol to an unknown God, is what Paul um, puts his kind of puts his main point on. Philip Johnson in his commentary says this: the Athenians knew that they did not know what they needed to know about the one who controlled their lives. Their admission, the idol to an unknown God, was Paul's starting point. And so this last part is just. What does he do? Well, he just brings in the gospel. And basically, he just talks about three things. God is the creator and the sustainer. He's high and lifted up. He doesn't need us. Secondly, he says um, he created us to seek and worship him. And thirdly, he calls us to repent and believe. So basically, without using the scriptures, he takes the ideas of the scripture and he says, this I present to you, the gospel. First and foremost, God is the creator. Okay, so Epicureans, Stoics, and the other idol worshippers who worship the pantheon of gods. God is the creator. He says in 24, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So he's saying God is the ultimate creator. He's your, he's your reality. He's your sustainer. I'm here to tell you about that. So this would challenge the Greek pantheon, folks. Okay. Um, in other words, he was saying these little gods that you have, whether it's Zeus or the god of, or Bacchus, the god of drink, um, the god of war. Who was the god of war? What? Yeah. I mean, all these different gods, these are puny. These are gods who are involved with one aspect of life. And he's saying, this is, you have to serve them. You have to, uh, they, they need temples built by hands. But he's saying, no, the God of the universe is big. He is the ultimate God. He created you. He doesn't need, uh, temples built by hands. He's not dependent on you. Unlike what these Greek gods were. Um, the Epicureans saw the gods as far removed from matter. And so this, this was challenging them, saying, no, God, God is here. He's involved with your world. Um, verse, verse 25, he says, He made man in order that they might worship Him. Um, and yet we don't. Oh, sorry. But not by man-made shrines and sacrifices. And so the... the the issue here is that um, the challenge was that God was the one who created everything and um, He was intimately involved in His world at the same time. So He was high above, He was transcendent, but also He was intimate and involved in their world. Verse 26, He says, He made man from one man, every nation of mankind, to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward Him and find Him. And so he's kind of explaining what they're going through. They have this idea of a God, and he's saying that God actually um, designed this. He's sovereign about man, where they live, and what geographical areas and when. Why? So that they would actually worship Him. And so he uses their own poets he says this, In Him we live and move and have our being, even as some of your own poets have said, for we are His offsprings. 
So he's using their own poets, this guy by the name of Epimenides of Crete and, and Aratus. And he's presenting his case without Scripture. Um, the problem was is they worshipped and created images of gold, silver, and stone. And so he's saying, no, this unknown God I'm declaring to you, He's not made of silver. He's not made of, of wood. He's not made of stone. But He's there. He exists spiritually. Then he, then he challenges them. And He basically challenges them by saying there's judgment coming. Verse 30 and 31, "...the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent, because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness." by a man whom he has appointed. Of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So, think about Paul. Think about the guts he had. He's all alone. He's in the Areopagus. He's got people that think he's a babbler. And he's saying, guess what? God is coming to judge you for your idolatry. But he continues on. The Stoics, this would... This would not sit well with them because they believed basically the world was circular and it was more like reincarnation. The history went in circles. And Paul is saying, no, it's linear. It started here with this God who created everything and it's going to end here with judgment. This is how it is. Um, the Epicureans, they didn't believe in an afterlife at all, so this would definitely hit them in the side of the head. But Paul's not afraid to present the truth. Why? Because Jesus had revealed Himself to him. He's not afraid to present the Gospel because deep, deep in his heart, he knew the Gospel was true. And he knew Jesus, the risen one, had he had seen. And this changed everything. He had such a view of God and Jesus and who He was and His commission to go. And he knew who God was. And he experienced God that he could say to people that didn't yet believe, this is the way it is. This is the truth. In the middle of the Areopagus, when no one else believed, and they were scorning him, he was able to stand and present the truth. And the proof that this is all true, again, he brings in the resurrection. Verse 31, He has given assurance to all by raising Him, Jesus, from the dead. You know, and we talked about this last last week, that in all of his messages, in all of the gospel presentations, Paul always talks about the resurrection. And I would say for us, you know, as we as we may have people in our circles, ask them what they think about the resurrection. Because basically <laughs> the argument is this if someone rose from the dead you should listen to Him. It has authority all of its own. Because Jesus rose from the dead. No matter what you believed before, this is the one you listen to. Because as far as I, as I know, no one else has ever done that. And so, He's saying this is the uniqueness of the Christian faith. And this is why you should believe. Because that Jesus is going to come and judge you. Because guess what? He's alive and He's rose from the dead. And I saw Him. So, this passage... So what happened? Well, the result is two people believed. Not a lot at this point. 
You might think, well, that's not much of a victory. But two people and, and one guy, it says he, he is um, Demarius the uh, or Dionysius the Areopagite. And I have not studied that word, but Areopagus and Areopagite. I'm thinking that this is a dude who like was in like lived in that place and maybe was one of the council members. I don't know that because I haven't. I didn't look in the commentary about that. But if that is so, can you see the influence that guy would have on the rest of that council uh, with the gospel? And so, what is God doing in all this? God is is taking the gospel to the most un like basically the most non Christian area of the of the world, Rome, this Roman area, this Greek area, Greece, Athens. And he's presenting the gospel and people are believing. And that's just the seed of it that's spreading out to all of us. And so, the gospel is our testimony. 1 Corinthians again, For Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and follies and folly to Gentiles. We're going to be called seed pickers. We're going to be called babblers. But we have the truth. And we can humbly present that to people in a way they can understand using their poets, using their art, using their movies to present the truth that deep, deep down all people know, but they suppress. This is our call. It's not, it's not easy, but the Spirit can help you and can help us present like Paul did to people that have never heard about Jesus and have no idea what the Bible says just because we're made in His image, they're made in His image, we're in His world. And these ideas click when God's Spirit is working. So let me pray. Lord, thank You for this story of Paul, Your messenger, Your apostle, in a place that did not believe. Thank You that You are breaking down the philosophical and intellectual um, bondage of people way back in Athens, Greece. And Lord, you're still doing that today where you're opening the eyes of people that say no to you and suppress you because your spirit is at work. So help us as we talk to unbelievers to be gracious, to use words that they understand, to use even our own poets and um, cultural people of the day, Lord, to present your gospel. So, God, give us your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm going to close singing a song.